Welcome to the History of the Americans podcast, episode 38. I am your host, Jack Henneman, and I am recording this way too early in the morning on September 14th, 2021. I have a nine o'clock flight to the coast, as we used to say. So I've got to get this out of the way so I don't have to schlep my microphone around Southern California. Before we get to the history fun, I want to thank a bunch of people for spreading the word about this podcast. Twitter rascal David Burge has mentioned it several times, as has Nancy Rommelman, both of whom you might follow if you swim in the Twitter pool, and Brian McGrath, who can be found on Substack and Twitter learnedly discussing all things naval. Brian sent me a note that he quoted Drake on assuming his first command, which strikes me as an excellent idea for all you future Navy captains. Finally, a special thank you to Glenn Reynolds, the founder and lead blogger of Instapundit, for a very supportive endorsement. Countless others have spread the word on Twitter and Facebook. Thank you all. It is truly humbling. This episode is The Road to the Roanoke Colonies. If you haven't already done, you might give a listen to the last few episodes on Francis Drake, as well as episode 31, England in the 1500s and the Rise of the Merchant Adventurers, which went up on July 23rd, for relevant background. It is the spring of 1581. In early April, Elizabeth I had knighted Francis Drake, conferring Her Majesty's blessing on his privateering against Spain in the Pacific. The geopolitical importance of Drake's journey had become apparent to the Queen during their long conversations since his return, and she had slapped an order of secrecy on all accounts of the voyage, including the location of Novo Albion on the northwest coast of North America. The penalty for violating the order would be death. More on that in a future episode. Only a week before, Philip II of Spain had been crowned King of Portugal after a succession crisis in that country. The Iberian Peninsula and the vast territories and interests of Spain and Portugal were now united under Philip II, Catholicism's greatest champion. Elizabeth's erstwhile brother-in-law and suitor and now geopolitical adversary had become the most powerful man in the known world. Spain was on the offensive against Protestants everywhere. In Ireland, the Pope had dispatched troops, including some Spaniards, to support Catholic resistance against English rule. In the Netherlands, the Duke of Alba, one of Philip's toughest lieutenants, was grinding down Protestant resistance in the suppression of the Dutch revolt. There was still a restive Catholic population in England, and regular plotting against Elizabeth's life, sometimes with Spanish complicity. The Catholic Mary Queen of Scots remained in a gilded cage under prolonged house arrest in England, and the whiff of anti-Elizabethan conspiracy swirled around her. Elizabeth and her Protestant advisors had long recognized these threats and long worked to confront them. At home, she put pressure on the Catholic population to keep it in line. On March 18, 1581, one week before Philip would add Portugal to his realm and two weeks before Elizabeth would knight Drake, Parliament passed the Act Against Reconciliation to Rome, 
which, among other things, made attendance at Church of England services mandatory, with stiff fines imposed on people who skipped them. The resettlement of the Catholic population of England would eventually become a rationale for North American colonization. In foreign policy, the Elizabethans pursued a strategy against Spain that American cold warriors would recognize as containment. To simplify a bit, England would harass Philip at the edges of his empire, but avoid pushing him into a war that England could not win. This was a delicate calculation, but not an impossible one. While Spain was always confident that she could beat England soundly if she needed to, she had her own reasons to avoid yet another war. Philip was spending a fortune in suppressing the Dutch revolt and in doing the Pope's work against the Ottoman Turks in the Mediterranean. And as always, wealthy merchants in both England and Spain were loath to give up their own profitable businesses. The English merchants in the Spanish trade supported the doves on Elizabeth's Privy Council and vice versa, just as the privateers favored and were favored by the hawks. At a high level, England's plan to annoy the King of Spain, as Sir Humphrey Gilbert put it in a tract on the topic, stood on three legs. First, England would support Protestants everywhere, particularly in France and the Netherlands, in their resistance to Catholic rule, which would keep Spain, which had determined to destroy heresy, distracted and overcommitted. Lest you thought otherwise, the United States and the Soviet Union did not invent war by proxy. Second, English privateers and pirates, the former sailing under letters of mark and the latter not, would steal Spanish wealth and pin down Spanish naval resources, policing the Caribbean and protecting treasure convoys across the Atlantic. At the peak, there may have been as many as 200 English freebooters pecking at the Spanish Navy and Merchant Marine. Drake was critical of this program insofar as the tremendous wealth he gathered from Spain in 1573 and 1580 set the aspirational mark for countless imitators. And, of course, his victories in the Pacific in 1579 forced Spain to invest in the defense of the west coast of South and Central America, something it had not bothered to do before Drake. Third, and chronologically last, a rising faction in England saw the colonization of the Atlantic coast of North America as having the potential to address multiple problems at once, most importantly, England wanted a forward base from which its privateers could resupply and refit, which would significantly increase the time they could operate against Spanish shipping in the Caribbean and across the Atlantic. North American colonies were also seen as having the potential to diversify English markets. North America was thought to contain valuable raw materials, and successful and growing colonies might turn into a new market for English manufacturers. Finally, England needed a place to send its surplus population, especially the poor unemployed displaced by the enclosure of the pastures and the decline of the woolen cloth trade, and also English Catholics, whom the Elizabethans wanted to get rid of, but did not want to deport to Europe for fear they would be recruited by France or Spain to annoy England in return. 
It was in this context that key adventurers and intellectuals on or affiliated with Elizabeth's Privy Council began to look toward the colonization of North America. Before we get to that history, let's briefly run through the dramatis personae for the era, most of whom I have mentioned in previous episodes without delving too deeply into their relationships with each other. William Cecil, Lord Burley, was Elizabeth's long-standing principal advisor and the leading dove on the Privy Council, at least as it related to Spain. Cecil counseled prudence in almost everything. Attentive listeners may recall that Elizabeth had forbidden anybody from telling Cecil about Drake's secret mission to find the Strait of Onion, the western entrance to the fabled Northwest Passage. This was not because she thought Cecil was untrustworthy. She just didn't want to listen to his whinging about provoking Philip and the like. Cecil was not against exploration per se. He had supported Martin Frobisher's voyages into northern Canada in search of the passage, but he was by nature a compromiser rather than a confronter. Robert Dudley, Earl of Leicester, was a courtier and statesman under Elizabeth, a devout Protestant, an anti-Spain hawk, and frequent investor in overseas adventures, including those of Drake. Dudley was famously appointed Elizabeth's Master of the Horse on her accession, and was the most prominent object of her affections, or at least flirtation, until Walter Raleigh arrived on the scene. Robert Dudley was the son of John Dudley, who had led the government of the boy King Edward VI in the 1540s until 1553, and who had, in that capacity, been one of the leading promoters of English adventurism abroad. Francis Walsingham was another hotly Protestant hawk in Elizabeth's circles, most famous for his extensive intelligence network. Walsingham had left England during Bloody Mary's reign, unlike Cecil, and had extensive experience on the continent. He was an early investor in overseas adventures, including the Moscovy Company, Martin Frobisher's expeditions, and Drake's circumnavigation. John Dee was a mathematician, cosmographer, and, back when this was a legitimate thing, astrologer. In the former capacities, he had predicted the lunar eclipse that Drake would use to fix longitude in the southeastern Pacific after exiting the Strait of Magellan, about which a bit more at the end of this episode. In the last capacity, he had advised Elizabeth on the optimal day for her coronation all the way back in 1559. Dee was ambitious for England and is said to have coined the term British Empire. Sir Francis Drake needs no introduction to long-standing listeners. Suffice it to say that I believe his importance to the history of the Americans has been grievously underappreciated. Without Drake and his amazing successes in 1573 and 1580, there would not have been a vast fleet of would-be imitators, English privateers and pirates torturing the Spanish for profit and God. Without Drake, England wouldn't have had the confidence to bet that her much smaller navy could protect her from invasion by Spain. Without Drake, the Doves and the Privy Council would have been far more likely than the Hawks to win support from the careful Queen. Without Drake, there might never have been an Anglo-Spanish war, and the Armada might never have sailed. 
and if it had, without Drake, the English might not have prevailed. Under such circumstances, with Spanish naval superiority, it is hard to imagine a defensive, hunkered-down England establishing colonies on territory then claimed by Spain from Florida all the way to Maine. Martin Frobisher was a privateer, pirate, and explorer who became famous for three voyages into northern Canada in search of the eastern end of the Northwest Passage during the 1570s. Frobisher hated Drake, who would become quite flamboyant with his new wealth, but would also go on to serve valiantly in the defense of England against the Spanish Armada in 1588 and thereby earn his own knighthood. Sir Humphrey Gilbert was an early champion of colonizing North America. Gilbert was also Walter Raleigh's older half-brother, senior by 17 years, and greatly influenced him. At various points, making critical introductions and sparking in young Walter an interest in overseas colonization. Gilbert secured the first patent, authorization in effect, from Elizabeth to settle North America. He claimed Newfoundland for Elizabeth and organized an expedition for sustaining colonies in the New World. But he was a poor seaman and died in 1583 when his small ship, the Squirrel, went down in a North Atlantic storm. Richard Grenville was a naval commander, investor, and cousin of both Humphrey Gilbert and Sir Walter Raleigh. Grenville worked on various colonial ventures in Ireland and South America and sailed in command of the fleet that would escort the first batch of settlers to Roanoke Island in 1585. Richard Hacklite the Younger was the most important propagandist for English colonization. He was the cousin of an older Richard Hacklite, a lawyer who had introduced him to the then fascinating subjects of geography and cosmography. Hacklite the Younger studied at Oxford and assembled a vast collection of documents describing the far reaches of the world. He published a series of compendiums, the most famous of which is known as Principal Navigations and Voyages, and eventually was one of the leading group to establish the first Virginia Charter and the colony of Jamestown. Today's Hacklite Society, founded in 1846, still publishes original documents from the Age of Discovery. Humphrey Gilbert's younger brother, Sir Walter Raleigh, spelled his name R-A-L-E-G-H, unlike the city in North Carolina named after him. Raleigh was a courtier, colonial investor, writer, organizer of ventures, and the most famous object of the Queen's affection. Raleigh would be instrumental in the organization of the Roanoke Island Project and name the region Virginia in honor of Elizabeth. Thomas Harriet was a mathematician and scientist in the employ of Sir Walter Raleigh. He traveled to Roanoke Island in the 1585 voyage and in his writings described much of what we know about the flora, fauna, and natives in the region. He would eventually go on to learn basic Algonquin, the language group of most of the tribes along the Atlantic coast, and develop a proto-alphabet that symbolized Algonquin language sounds. John White was a painter and naturalist. He came to prominence in 1577 when he painted Inuits kidnapped by Martin Frobisher. 
perhaps too obvious to say. Before photography, realistic painting was an immensely important means of communication, above and beyond its value as art, and White became a master of it. Raleigh brought him into his circle, and White was dispatched on the 1585 expedition to Roanoke Island to capture images of the local flora, fauna, and people. Raleigh made him governor of the second Roanoke colony in 1587, the famous Lost Colony. His granddaughter was the first English baby born on American soil, and her name was Virginia Dare. And of course, there was the woman around whom all these stars moved in their courses, Elizabeth I, whose importance to the history of the Americans cannot be overstated. If you have not already done, you might check out episode 32 of the podcast, which dropped on July 30th, 2021, to get a good sense of her. The final thing to remember is that all these people knew each other well. They moved in a small circle, saw each other all the time, and no doubt had many interactions that are lost to history. We have an incomplete picture. It is easy in situations like this to draw sweeping conclusions from the scant written record that survives when we really just see glimpses of their lives, personalities, and decisions. Reasonable speculation to fill in the gaps is a professional responsibility of historians. Point of clarification, I am not a historian. Which is why it is so important to understand how 16th century people thought, however alien it may be, to sensibilities today. Now that you know the players, let's roll back the clock into the mid-1570s and see how the pieces move around the chessboard. After Drake returned with his first big fortune following the raid on Panama in 1573, he and other West Country privateers, including his cousin John Hawkins, who had gotten young Drake into the smuggling racket in the 1560s, and Richard Grenville, proposed an involved scheme to establish a colony south of today's Buenos Aires on the Atlantic coast of Argentina near the mouth of the River Plate. The idea was that the colony would control the eastern entrance to the strait, and privateers could travel into the Pacific and plunder Spanish treasure on the backside, as it were. Elizabeth shrewdly judged the plan for a colony that far away. The coast at the mouth of the River Plate is well over 7,000 miles of sailing distance from Plymouth. As wholly unrealistic and vetoed the idea, but the point was not lost on her. She saw enough merit in the strategy to greenlight Drake's circumnavigation from 1577 to 1580 and the exploration of the Pacific coast of the Americas, which we covered in the last three episodes. Roughly as Drake was leaving on his circumnavigation, Sir Humphrey Gilbert presented his own grand strategy to contain and even weaken Philip. James Horne describes the proposal in his book, A Kingdom Strange, The Brief and Tragic History of the Lost Colony of Roanoke. Horne. War with Spain was inevitable, Sir Humphrey argued because Philip was wholly addicted to Catholicism and would sooner or later declare war in England the last major obstacle in his struggle to eradicate heresy. Elizabeth was the leading Protestant monarch in Europe, and as she and her ministers knew well, 
Spain represented the greatest threat to the security of her realm. How could she withstand so great a prince? Gilbert insisted that it would be necessary to preempt Spanish aggression by striking a blow so damaging that Philip would quickly sue for peace. I'll pause here and make the friendly observation that this is the same sort of magical belief in a preemptive strike that rarely actually works in practice. The Japanese military chiefs who cooked up the attack on Pearl Harbor would have been nodding right along with Gilbert. Back to Horn. Gilbert's plan called for an assault on two fronts. First, to protect the crown from diplomatic reprisals, Gilbert would fit out a fleet and sail to the Newfoundland fishing banks where, under the cloak of privacy, he would capture French, Spanish, and Portuguese ships. He would carry off the best as prizes to the Netherlands or England and burn the rest. The raid would devastate the Spanish cod fishery off Newfoundland, which was an extremely valuable component of Spain's trade in the North Atlantic. The profits from selling the captured ships and fish would be used to finance the second part of the plan in which the English would occupy Cuba and Hispaniola, the two largest islands in the Caribbean. Gilbert believed this could be easily done because both were sparsely populated. Once the English were in possession of the islands, they would entrench themselves so effectively that no power would be able to remove them. They would draw upon the natural wealth of the islands and develop heavily fortified bases from which to harass Spanish treasure fleets on their way through the Caribbean to the Atlantic and Spain. The smallest loss to King Philip II in the Indies, Gilbert assured the Queen, would be, quote, more grievous to him than any loss that can happen to him elsewhere. To my ear, this seems like a goofier idea than the colonies at the southern end of the Western Hemisphere. But in the summer of 1578, while Drake actually was wintering over at the southern end of the Western Hemisphere, Elizabeth issued a patent to Gilbert that gave him vast rights in North America, as long as he settled and exploited the relevant territory within six years. On the strength of that patent, Gilbert was able to assemble a fleet of 11 ships, one of which was under the command of his younger half-brother, Walter Raleigh, and some 500 men, and was ready to depart in September 1578, just as Drake was entering the Pacific. Gilbert's expedition was a luckless dog's breakfast of a fiasco from the very beginning. The winds were bad for two months, and the fleet was pinned into the harbor. His captains bickered, and three ships deserted even before the fleet's eventual departure in November. Gilbert then tried to get the fleet west of Ireland, but failed as well in that, and eventually threw in the towel on the grand scheme and just decided to sail for the West Indies to see what fortune he might capture there. Gilbert's ships never got there, they got in a big fight with the Spanish off Cape Verde, took heavy losses, and limped back to Plymouth in May 1579. Gilbert's reputation suffered mightily, and even Raleigh had to rehabilitate himself. Raleigh went off to Ireland to do some heavy-handed colonialism there for a year and a half, and then returned to court in the winter of 1581-82, hoping to work for Walsingham. 
Raleigh was dashing at 28 years old, and it was at this point that Elizabeth, now almost 50 and having kicked Robert Dudley to the curb some years before, took an interest in him. She hung on Raleigh's every eloquent word, whether sensible or not, flirted openly with him, and granted him valuable estates and a license to charge every vintner in England one pound a year for permission to sell their wine. There were 700 vintners, so this was a substantial income in a day when a pound went a very long way. Her Majesty also gave Raleigh the use of Durham House, a palace on the Thames with gardens and orchard, outbuildings for servants, stables on the Strand, and easy access by boat to Elizabeth's residence at Whitehall. So we didn't fornicate. How convenient. While the church lady would not have approved, it should be said that there is no evidence I know of that Elizabeth and Raleigh were actually lovers in the modern sense. Gilbert himself was not so fortunate. His fortune largely wrecked with his ships off Cape Verde, he scraped together what he could and dispatched a Portuguese master mariner, Simon Fernandez, on a reconnaissance mission to North America in March of 1580, just as Drake and the Golden Hind were departing Java for the unbelievably long run to the west coast of Africa. Fernandez, who would a few years later loom large in the story of the lost colony of Roanoke, made a fast crossing and landed somewhere in lower New England or the mid-Atlantic seaboard. He was back in England by early summer 1580. Gilbert, however, was in a poor position to organize a new substantial expedition of colonization before his patent was to have expired in 1584. Then a door cracked open. In early 1582, Raleigh's meteoric rise in the Queen's graces and largesse gave his big brother one more shot. Gone were dreams of conquering Cuba and Hispaniola. Gilbert couldn't afford an expedition capable of doing that, even under the application of magical thinking. Now I'll go back to James Horn's account, because in it lie all the geopolitical concerns and mercantile themes that animated the Protestant hawks in Elizabeth's circle. Throughout the summer of 1582, Gilbert set about raising money by offering vast landed estates and commercial privileges to individuals and mercantile corporations. He granted rights to millions of acres in North America, at locations to be discovered, to groups of English Catholics led by Sir George Peckham and Sir Thomas Gerard. The Catholics wanted to establish colonies where they could practice their faith free of the increasingly harsh penalties imposed on them in England. In response to Spanish and papal injunctions calling upon English Catholics to rebel against Queen Elizabeth, the government had recently introduced heavy fines for non-attendance at the established church. Gilbert's grants of lands to Catholics in North America, supported by the Queen, provided a means by which they could escape the new penalties and create a distant refuge for themselves and their co-religionists. Supported by the Queen does a lot of work in that last sentence of Horns. According to Robert Hutchinson, who wrote the usefully titled book The Spanish Armada, 
Walsingham was the big internal advocate of shipping Catholics to North America, and the hapless Gilbert was his instrument. Elizabeth was listening to her spymaster, the man who protected her against one Catholic assassination plot after another. One other point. Most of my learned listeners will recall from school or first Thanksgiving stories that a similar desire for religious freedom would animate the pilgrims who had sailed to Massachusetts 38 years later. They too wanted to be free of English ecclesiastical oppression, and England also wanted to be rid of them. Back to Horn. Sir Humphrey's plan was of necessity different than that of five years earlier. Because his personal finances were still fragile, he could not risk further heavy losses. To raise money for ships and men and to meet the terms of his royal grant, he was forced to focus on the establishment of colonies in North America rather than on plundering Spanish possessions in the West Indies. First, he intended to locate a base for a year somewhere along the New England coast, from which he would explore the interior and adjacent islands. Then, leaving behind a small garrison, he would return to England to drum up support for additional investment and to make specific allocations of lands to those who had already subscribed. The colony in New England would be virtually autonomous from England, organized as a series of independent settlements. It would be a rigidly hierarchical society of great and lesser landlords rising over their tenants, with Gilbert having authority as the colony's chief lord and governor. In addition to rents, the exploitation of natural products and commercial rights granted to merchant groups would provide additional income, creating a flow of revenue that Gilbert could use to finance the second part of his plan, setting up a privateering base farther south near Spanish Florida. No spoiler alert is required to point out that Gilbert's expedition ultimately failed. For my part, I'm glad that it did, for it would have ushered in an entirely different New England than the one that eventually transpired, envisioning as it did an almost neo-Spanish system of landholders and tenants. The New England towns that did so much to shape American political and cultural traditions in the next two centuries and beyond might not have emerged had Gilbert succeeded. Indeed, we might have evolved something closer to the Spanish system, which has not worked out very well for Latin American societies and economies in the last 500 years. Gilbert's fleet of five ships made it to Newfoundland, where he made expansive claims for England and imperiously demanded the allegiance of the many fishing vessels from many countries, including France, Spain, Portugal, and England, plying those waters in peaceful coexistence. This would have irritated Elizabeth no end, for she had explicitly circumscribed his authority to territory not occupied by other Europeans. She wanted to contain Philip, not start a war with a now united Iberian Empire or push Spain and France together against her, which, of course, Gilbert was on record years before, as wanting to do. At any rate, after some weeks prospecting and exploring the area around today's St. John's, 
On August 20th, 1582, Gilbert pushed his increasingly recalcitrant and diseased fleet south along the east coast of North America. Gilbert sailed on his favorite ship, the tiny eight-ton Squirrel, so he wasn't on board when his flagship, the 120-ton Delight, ran aground and broke up over the coast of Nova Scotia, taking with her the lives of 80 men and all of Gilbert's notes and maps of Newfoundland. Gilbert was ruined, and he knew it. He turned the remaining ships, now down to two, around in a storm. Now back to Horn for the final moment of England's first attempt to colonize North America. The storm had come on quickly, the ocean rising and falling, described by the surviving Captain Edward Hayes, like hills and dales upon the land. But Gilbert, brave and reckless, paid little heed. Seated at the stern of the tiny squirrel, he read calmly from a book, said by various people, by the way, to have been Thomas More's Utopia. As if to defy the elements raging against him, sailing as close as he dared, Hayes called to Gilbert to join him. But Gilbert refused, saying he would not forsake his men, with whom he had endured many perils. As the storm worsened, the squirrel was repeatedly swamped by huge waves. Several times, Hayes thought her lost, yet somehow each time she recovered. Gilbert signaled that all was well and cried out repeatedly above the howling wind the old adage, quote, We are as near to heaven by sea as by land. Then about midnight on Monday, September 9th, 1583, the lights of the squirrel suddenly went out. The lookout of the surviving ship, peering into the darkness ahead, shouted that the squirrel was cast away, which Hayes, in his account of the voyage, remarked was true. For in that instance, the squirrel and her crew were, quote, devoured and swallowed up of the sea. Humphrey Gilbert, it seems, had chosen suicide by storm. Elizabeth, for her part, would dryly observe that Gilbert was, quote, a man noted of not good hap by sea. And now you know how to say hapless in the English of Shakespeare's day. That fall, no doubt mourning the memory of his beloved older brother, Walter Raleigh would follow in his footsteps as the leading organizer of English colonies in North America. Over the next year, he would turn Durham House into a school for scholars and mariners. Long-standing and attentive listeners will recall that in this, Raleigh was, consciously or not, probably not, following the lesson of Portugal's Prince Henry the Navigator, who had established the first such incubator for entrepreneurial exploration 150 years before, above the roadstead at Cape St. Vincent, on the southwest corner of the Iberian Peninsula. Raleigh took into his service Richard Hacklite, both of them actually, John D., Simon Fernandez, Thomas Harriet, John White, and others, who would become the team that would plan and execute the various attempts to establish a colony at Roanoke Island on the Outer Banks of North Carolina. 
You shall hear their story in the weeks to come and watch as it unfolds against the darkening geopolitical cloudscape. Before we end this episode, though, I want to get to the bottom of a little mystery I spoke of in the second episode of Drake's Circumnavigation. You will recall that John Dee had predicted a lunar eclipse on September 15, 1578, and that Drake had seen it, recorded it, and measured the Golden Hind's longitude by it. I had not been able to find that eclipse in the NASA databases of all lunar eclipses in the last 5,000 years, and called upon my brilliant audience to dig a little deeper. I am delighted to report that among our listeners is a veteran professional astronomer. He pointed out that I was looking at the wrong part of the database, which extends a thousand years into our future and reflects the dates as a subtraction from that future year. I apparently looked at minus 1578 rather than the year 1578. Indeed, NASA does calculate a lunar eclipse on September 15th of that year, exactly as predicted by D and recorded by Drake. I stand corrected. And further, I burst with pride that such people are listening to this podcast. Please keep those corrections coming. Thank you again for listening. It would be a great favor to me if you would write a review on Apple, if that is how you listen. I am learning that favorable reviews have an outsized impact on the algorithms that now dominate our lives, so you can help the podcast by pitching in. And, of course, please visit the website or our Facebook page and keep those comments, corrections, and pats on the back coming. They are all very motivating and help me make the history of the Americans better. 